For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I didn't see it coming. No, I don't mean General Motors promised to stop making gas-powered cars and trucks by 2035, uh, though the way they've been going in recent years, it might happen, whether they can prosper with the zero tailpipe emissions kind or not. The New York Times thinks they can, although General Motors did boast in January 2020 that in the United States, quote, we've focused our resources on what our customers want, crossovers and trucks, and that has paid off, end quote. And I might mention that the New York Times isn't exactly showing how a venerable firm can adapt to new circumstances either. But never mind. You know, as long as consumers get to decide, that is, as long as governments neither force everyone to make or buy electric cars, nor rob those who don't want them to reward those who do, we want to see markets decide. And speaking of seeing, the big item this week is Patrick Moore's new book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, which is very timely, as well as very well written and very thoughtful, because we hear a lot about evidence-based decision-making these days, and we're told that there's this overwhelming evidence of man-made climate catastrophe. But as Moore points out in the book, quote, the great majority of scare stories about the present and future state of the planet and humanity as a whole are based on subjects that are either invisible, like CO2 and radiation, or extremely remote, like polar bears and coral reefs. Thus, the vast majority of people have no way of observing and verifying for themselves the truth of these claims, predicting these alleged catastrophes and devastating threats, end quote. And that is, in fact, a very odd feature of the environmental, and particularly the climate debate, how much of the evidence is stuff you just can't see. Including, as you know, because if it turns out that it's really, really cold, they say, ah, but, of course, that's climate change. That's extreme weather. So anything that happens is evidence after the fact. Well, how are you meant to tell if it's good evidence? Now, that's not to deny that some invisible things can be dangerous, including carbon monoxide which, incidentally, some people don't seem to know the difference between it and carbon dioxide. But Moore's right. It is curious the extent to which we're meant to take these invisible threats on faith, especially as when the evidence of things not seen does turn up. When somebody goes and checks, you know, the polar bears and the coral reefs are still there. Now, Moore's book is not about climate change. Though, of course, he does note how it seems to creep into discussions of every environmental issue these days, and lots more besides. And he does devote one chapter to it directly, including this list of absurd supposed consequences, including skinnier pigs and also fatter horses. And that's a classic piece of climate alarmism, because if you said, well, what do you not want a pig to do? It's get thinner. What do you not want a horse to do? Get fatter. And all effects of climate change are bad, and all bad things are effects of climate change, so abracadabra. Skinnier pigs and fatter horses. But as Moore points out in keeping with his theme. These aren't things that you're supposedly able to see if you just go and drive past a farm. They're things that supposedly will happen or might happen. And you see the problem in terms of evidence. You know, we will all eventually visit the future, or some of it anyway. But we can't go take a look, take a picture with our cell phone, then come back and report on it. So once again, we're relying on things that are invisible and inaccessible. I very much recommend that you look at Moore's book. And funnily enough, I'm also going to say something nice about John Kerry. I'm not done rubbishing the foolish things he said on climate, and I'm sure there'll be more of them. But late last November, he said something that was both sensible and courageous, which is that if you believe in a climate crisis, quote, and given the progress of fourth-generation nuclear, go for it. No other alternative, zero emissions, end quote. 
Of course, he was immediately heckled for things like not appreciating the dangers of radiation. But since Carey helped organize the first Earth Day in Massachusetts, and was against nuclear power for a long time before he was in favor of it, that's a silly claim. You know, even if nuclear is not actually zero emissions, given the cement and transport involved, he's absolutely right that if you're serious about reducing greenhouse gases, and if you don't want everyone starving in the dark, you need to be pro-nuclear because there is no other alternative. The various proposals for wind power, solar power, hydrogen power, peat moss, whatever it may be, they just can't replace what we're getting from fossil fuels. And in some ways, support for nuclear is almost a sanity test for climate alarmists. And John Kerry just proved he's sane, you know, though many people won't thank him for it. For our part, we certainly won't thank the Chinese government or its many watermelon apologists for reacting to incoming Biden Secretary of State Antony Blinken calling Beijing's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims genocide by blustering on Twitter that, quote, China is willing to work with the United States on climate change, but such cooperation cannot stand unaffected by the overall China-U.S. relations, end quote. You know, again, speaking of bad slogans, let us trash our own people or the planet gets it, certainly reveals some mighty strange priorities, one of them being treating repression as an essential good way up on the party's list, but also treating climate action not as something you're determined to do for your own sake and because it's good in itself, but as a concession to these strange Westerners for which you expect to be well paid. In the newsletter, we also note Roy Spencer's new warning that American temperature records are still contaminated by the urban heat island effect, even after official adjustments meant to correct for it. Which doesn't just remind us that there may be a lot of noise in those signals, but also that American government agencies committed to the warming narrative are systematically changing the raw data in ways that seem not to be innocent. In fact, as Spencer notes, there's a tendency for temperature to rise fastest when population density is rising, again, suggesting that you're getting these sort of microclimate effects of more asphalt and engines running and so on. And so he worked it backwards and he says, quote, extrapolating to zero population density would give essentially no warming in the United States during 1973 to 2011, end quote. He doesn't mean because then there'd be no greenhouse gas emissions. He means that if there were no people around having these local distorting effects, you would get no warming in that period. And if there was no warming from 1973 to 2011 in the United States, where the records are generally taken to be the gold standard, what becomes of global warming? We even ask what would become of it if a new study of the Sahara shows that it wasn't just lush during the Holocene climate optimum, when lack of CO2 sent temperatures soaring well above present levels, but it, that it was periodically warmer and wetter throughout this interglacial and the previous one, and even the intervening glacial. That's right, warming repeatedly caused wetting, bringing plants and animals back to the desert, and then cooling drove them out again. So, what's the conclusion? Well, apparently, quote, it is expected that this region will experience intense droughts as a consequence of human-induced climate change, end quote. A classic to someone with a hammer, everything looks like a nail story. Is that really what scientists say? Well, in our own latest installment of stuff actual scientists actually say, as opposed to things journalists make up then festoon with the phrase scientists say to make it sound legit, or some outlying result, which is then touted as being the absolute last word from the science. Uh, a recent paper says that 
the newest computer models overstate warming at least as badly as their predecessors. Almost as if it was on purpose. Meanwhile, our friends at CO2 Science report on a Malaysian study of the confused sap beetle, which is a great name, although apparently the actual, quote, Nitidulid beetles in the genus Carpophilus are important pests of dried fruit worldwide, end quote. And they're also evidently a growing annoyance for, uh, quote, ripening stone fruit in southern Australia, end quote, and other useful plants. And the study says that elevated CO2, instead of unleashing the parasites and killing the fruit trees, actually further confounds the beetle, also known as Carpophilus mutilatus, and helps the crop survive. And another paper, also reported on by CO2 Science, says that coral reefs harmed by warming events recover faster than we feared. How pleased Patrick Moore will be with that, unlike some other people. Now, if you like our work, please send us a visible sign of your support. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson.